great to see everyone. I'm Pastor Matt. We are going to introduce a new segment this morning to our worship service. It's called Invitation to Mission. And what we're going to do, this will probably be a regular feature of our worship services, at least that's the plan. Um, We put this right at the heart of our worship service because mission is at the heart of what we do. And so during this time, during the service, um, we will use uh, the time to update you on a current or planned mission outreach and tell you how you can be involved and how you can participate. So we're going to kick it off. Tyler's going to tell us about the Breakfast Club initiative that we've been involved in. Update us on that. Thanks, Tyler. Good morning, everyone. Uh, As Matt said, I'm Tyler Magnuson. I am the associate pastor of youth and community groups here. Um, And yeah, I'm going to talk about Breakfast Club. So if you've never heard of Breakfast Club, maybe you've never been here before, uh, it's a partnership that we started this spring, plan to continue, uh, between Prairie Hill, a church called City Hill, like two miles down the road, and then a church on the other side of Eden Prairie called Liberty Baptist Church. Um, And very simply... Every other Thursday this spring at a house that's about two doors down if you went out the parking lot and walked that direction, uh, we gave kids free breakfast and I talked to them about Jesus and the Bible for about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, It went really well. Uh, Like I said, we did it every two weeks um, and we averaged, well, there was anywhere between five and 20 kids depending on the the Thursday. and we were really we were really excited about it. Uh, started in February. The last one was last Thursday. And we could not have done it alone. As I said, we were partnering with two other churches. Um, and at Prairie Hill, I wanted to give a special shout out. I, oh, Margie, you are here. Uh, Margie Christensen, uh, Marlis Kimes, and Shauna Miller were our volunteer coordinators this spring. So they did what me and Matt may not have had the bandwidth to do and uh, coordinated Food, prayer, volunteers, all of that. So can you give them a hand? Yeah, uh, Shauna was especially helpful. She coordinated our prayer team for this spring. So thank you to her for that. Uh, like I said, or as Matt said, part of this is part of this invitation to mission segment is trying to encourage you guys and give you opportunities to get involved uh, in our church's mission going forward. And for Breakfast Club, as I said, we plan to do it again in the fall. So this fall, we will again need donations of food. We will need uh, volunteers really early on Thursday mornings. Uh, and probably, well, definitely most importantly, we need your prayers. Um, we have some momentum, but we, we want this to continue. We want this to grow. We want this to be a thing that students can come to and hear about Jesus. Um, my, my two focuses this spring or that they would hear that Jesus loves them and that they matter to Jesus. I want to, if I get to talk a lot more in the fall, I want to give uh, more messages along that line and hopefully do some more like multi-week curriculum for them. Um, But I can't prep all that by myself. Uh, I need you guys praying with us uh, and volunteering and providing food. So uh, thank you all so much for the help this spring. It really was like a three church wide effort. And I think that's all I have to say. So thank you, everyone.
Thank you, Tyler, and thank you also to Shauna and Margie and Marlis uh, for your leadership at Prairie Hill and Breakfast Club. Um, I know I'm really looking forward to the fall, seeing what God uh, will be pleased to do with this outreach. Um, Okay, now, if you have a Bible with you, either a hard copy like me or on your phone, I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. Uh, Luke 15 contains one of the most famous, if not the most famous passage um, in the entire Bible. And that's the privilege we have today to look, look at this particular passage um, about the prodigal son. If, uh, even, even if you have like zero familiarity with the Bible or very, very little, the, the chances are good that you have heard reference made to the prodigal son. The prodigal son is the name that's usually given to this parable that we're going to read, given by Jesus, in which there are two brothers, one of whom demands and then proceeds to squander his entire inheritance. in a very short period of time. The word prodigal means wasteful or reckless. And we're going to hear that parable in just a few moments. Now, the really interesting thing about the parable of the prodigal son is that the prodigal son is not the main character. And... Neither is the father who receives him home with such joy. The main character, the character that we really have to understand and really have to get inside and come to grips with is the other brother, the older one, the one who's responsible and stays. His attitude and his actions are meant to be a mirror and a rebuke toward self-righteous religious people. The whole reason that the parable gets told is because all these sinners, tax collectors, undesirable people are gathering around Jesus and Jesus is developing a very close relationship with the sinful people and the really religious people, the leaders, don't like it. They're grumbling about this situation. And so Jesus tells this parable as a way of putting a mirror in front of them and saying, this is what you're like. Your attitudes and actions don't actually reflect God. You think you represent God, and you think you're, not only that, you think you're the best representation of God out there. Here's what you're really like. Look in this mirror. And so the parable is a mirror for them. We'll talk about that older brother two weeks from now. Today we're going to talk about the father in the story. And then next Sunday we're going to talk about the prodigal, the younger son. Even though... 
Everything in this parable and everything in Luke 15 sets up the older brother. Everything, everything else works to set up his reaction. Even though that's the main focus, there are things that we want to see, see and things that we need to see in the other two characters, in the younger son and in the father. After all, if, if Jesus told the parable to show the religious people how much they didn't look like God, He has to also show what God is actually like. He has to give us a faithful picture of who this God is so he can contrast their attitude. And so we have that faithful picture in this wonderful father that we meet in the parable of the prodigal son, okay? And we can learn today what God is like. What a privilege. I'm so excited. I'm going to read all of Luke 15 right now. We're not going to do that each of the next two Sundays. But I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, I'm going to invite you to remain seated for that and just listen. There are two preliminary parables, two really short parables that Jesus tells first about the lost sheep and about the lost coin. It's all connected. Those two little parables serve to set up the parable, the main parable, the prodigal son, okay? And we'll talk about those two other parables in a couple weeks when we focus on the older brother. This is Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them that this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy 
to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called out one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. How beautiful, Heavenly Father. We enjoy the beauty of the word and we enjoy the truth of the word. We celebrate that this is who you are. We have gathered to take some time to relish and cherish who you are. That's what's in our hearts. We want to see you and celebrate and cherish and relish who you are, who you have shown yourself to be. So thank you for this account. Help us as we consider it. Help us as we look at it for a long time. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you have come into this room today, I want to ask you what you think God is like. What is the image in your mind of who God is? In your mind, is, uh, is he distant? Is he angry? Is he harsh and cruel? Is he loving? It's your picture of God. There are many things that shape our view of God as we grow up. We have things that are formative to helping us picture what God is like. Some of those things are truer than others. 
your formative experiences in terms of how you picture God may be very much people-based, like relationship with mother and father, or even pastors or friends may have been very formative for you in how you view God. Maybe the formative things for you have been your personal experiences, especially hardship. When we go through things that are really hard, that affects our view of God and how we think about him and what he's like. That may be true for you. Maybe, maybe for some of you, maybe even for most of you, the most formative things in terms of how you view God have been your own studies in chemistry, biology, history, physics, religion, your studies in the humanities. Our view of who God is and what he's like can be shaped by all of these factors and be a mashup of of all of these things. But is it true? Is it accurate? What we have in front of us today, conveniently, is an interaction between Jesus and a group of people who are very settled in their view of what God is like, these religious leaders, right? They're the ones he's telling these parables to. They're very set in their own mind as to who God is, what God is like, what he celebrates, and what he condemns. The only problem is they're quite wrong. They're settled in their view, but they're wrong. In fact, they're tremendously wrong. They're not just a few degrees off in understanding who God is. They're 180 degrees off. I wonder if we might be 180 degrees off as well. I wonder if you might consider that your view of God is a little bit off or a lot bit off. You may think, well, hey, <laughs> I've been in church a long time. Okay, he's, he's talking to some of these other people in the room who haven't read their Bible as much as I have, didn't go to Sunday school, those untrained ones over there. But as for me, I've been studying the Bible a long time. I know who God is. I just want to remind you if that's going through your mind, and I'm sure it would be going through my mind if I were sitting over there in those seats, is that Jesus is talking with people who are professional scripture knowers, professional scripture studiers. No one is better at knowing the scriptures than these people, and they're the ones who are quite wrong. Is it possible? Is it possible then that we also, especially those of us who really know the Bible, could likewise be wrong, could be, in fact, really wrong? I think if we're honest, we just have to say, yeah, it, it, it must be possible. If it was possible for them, it's possible that it could be true for me. Well, what is God like? The Father in this parable represents God the Father. The Father in this beautiful parable represents God the Father. When we observe the Father in this parable, we are observing the attitudes and attributes of God the Father. 
Is it a complete picture of God the Father? No, but it's not intended to be. The Father in this story shows us a quite limited picture of God the Father. Limited but precise. The Father in the story shows us how God feels about repentant sinners. That's the part of God that we're seeing when we see the Father in this parable. And what we're being shown is how God feels about repentant sinners and what God does for repentant sinners. There's nothing here about creation. There's nothing here about judgment. There's nothing here about God's holiness. There's nothing here about how God is triune, actually three persons. There's nothing here about providence. All these other aspects of God the Father that we could look into, nothing here about those things. We're shown a very limited thing. How God feels about repentant sinners. What God does for repentant sinners. So, look, we don't make the Father in this story carry all of the weight of showing us everything about God the Father. We realize it's a limited view. what God does for repentant sinners in contrast to the contempt that the Pharisees are showing for the sinners that are gathered around Jesus, okay? So Jesus paints this picture for us of what God is like. And I just want to stand here and observe him with you for a few minutes. As I was preparing All through these days, getting ready, I really did think of myself as standing in front of a beautiful painting, just observing, appreciating what we're shown here about God the Father. Let's notice two things in particular, okay? His compassion and his extravagance. Those are the two things we're going to pay attention to. His compassion and his extravagance. We see his compassion described in verse 20. We'll do that one first, and then we'll talk about his extravagance. We see his compassion described, verse 20, and this is what we see. And he, that's the younger son, the prodigal, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him. He who had demanded his inheritance and then proceeded to squander it, left his father, left home. That's the one. His father saw the wasteful one who had shown him so much contempt, who had sinned against his father. His father saw him and felt what? What was the feeling that arose in the father when he saw him? Him who had come before his father and sat down and demanded to have everything that was his and then got out of there as fast as he could. He saw him and felt what? Anger. That would have been understandable. Incredulity. As in, I can't believe that you would dare to show your face back here. Like, you just squandered everything. Now you think, I'm going to do something for you? 
Is that what you think is going to happen here? I can't even believe that you would show up again on this property. His father saw him and felt what? Disappointment. Got this great other son who's here all the time, and here's here's this other one. All those bad choices. How is that blank filled in? His father saw him and felt compassion. It's the feeling that naturally arose inside of him. That's how he felt about his boy when he saw him. There are lots of ways to be far from God. Lots and lots of ways to be far off from God. Bad choices, behaviors, lifestyle, decisions. You can be be far off from God in those ways. Did you know you can also be very far off from God when you're right next to God? Who's farther off from God in this parable than the older son? Who looks less like God than the older brother, the one who's been right by him the whole time, self-righteous. When you're far off from God, when you're living far off in a distant country from the God of the Bible, the God we're talking about today, when that's you, when you are in the far country, having turned your back on everything in in the Bible, everything anyone's ever tried to tell you about God, and everything maybe that your parents have wanted for you, and you're just out there living, one of the things that can make it very, very hard for you is the scorn that you feel from the people that you know who are supposedly close to God. And this huge weight of judgment that you feel from them. And knowing that they use derogatory terms for you. Knowing that they put a label on you. Knowing that you have ceased to be a person and you have become a problem. Not a person to be loved anymore, but a problem to be solved. They may give you up for dead and lost. You own this label as second class, third class, black sheep. And you know that you could never live up to their standard, that you could never redeem yourself in their eyes because of what you've done and what you've become.
When you're in that far off country and you're living very far from God, you know that if you were ever to come back to their God, the God of the Bible and his people, you know that they would have a very long list for you. And they would have a lot of things that they would want to check off their list before they restore you to full love, full friendship. They would take a wait and see attitude towards you. Like, oh yeah, let's see if this is genuine. This person's come back. Yeah, we'll see. And even when they receive you back, it's always at arm's distance. Like, yeah, you're back, but you left. Unlike me, who stayed. And you were forever the one that left. The one that wasn't responsible, the one that squandered. If that's your story, if you know exactly what I'm talking about and feel, have felt the weight of that from the choices you've made and the reaction of the people in your life that say that they're close to God and have felt that kind of forever condemnation and distance, I am sorry. I am so sorry. That's not what God is like. All this father wants to do is hug his boy. He wants to kiss him. He doesn't ask for proof of change. He hasn't given him a label in the meantime. He doesn't view him as untouchable or past the point of reconciliation. He doesn't view him as a a problem or a work in progress. He views him as a son. That's who he is. In the Father's eyes, he's not a problem. He's not a bad decision maker. He's not a wasteful ingrate. This boy is a miracle. He was dead, and now he's alive. That's how the Father views him. That's how the Father views repentant sinners. The main point of this parable is to show us These people who we're looking at here are not like God. That's the point. To show us the difference between how humans treat repentant sinners and how God treats repentant sinners. So just consider, if I've just described your story to any extent, if you can enter into 50% of that, just consider that the people in your life well-intentioned as they may be, the people in your life who claim a relationship with God may not accurately reflect the God of the Bible. I fail at that all the time. We all do. Here we have a faithful picture of the God of the Bible. I want you to know, if you're out in that far country wondering 
how God feels about you. He watches the horizon, waiting and longing for your return. He just wants you to come home. Now, coming home is hard. Coming home is humbling. That's next Sunday when we talk about the prodigal. Today, we're just noticing the father. We see the compassion of the father. The other thing we notice is the extravagance of the father. Verses 22 through 24. So we notice his compassion. We notice his extravagance. Thinking about his extravagance, we see there's a big difference between what the younger son deserves and what he gets. Think about the difference between what he deserves when he comes home and what he actually receives. Think about the chasm between those two things. Well, what does he deserve? What does he deserve from his father? Well, at a minimum, probably a lecture. I mean, at a bare minimum, a lecture in all the wastefulness and youthful ignorance and pride and recklessness and all these things. And we would understand if the father would say something like, you know, why can't you be more like your older brother? He probably deserves more than a lecture. He probably deserves some kind of punishment. Like, hey, you're going to work all this off, you know. Like, you're going to be working a long time for free to pay off this wastefulness. In, in other words, he deserves something negative, doesn't he? Probably something that we would consider negative like that. But what does he get? He gets the best robe. He gets a ring on his hand. He gets shoes on his feet. He gets a feast in his honor. Not just any feast, but a feast including the special calf, the one especially prepared for the big celebration, the fattened calf. The father is as extravagant in his celebration of the son as the prodigal is in his sinfulness. This father not only doesn't give his son what he deserves, he does the opposite. He gives the son all these things that you would associate with someone who has performed and excelled and merited a celebration by their nobility and by their loyalty and by their, by their hard work. He treats his wasteful son as though he's been an exemplary son. And this, my friend, is the heart of the gospel. If the gospel is a a church word to you that you really have never quite understood what people mean when they say the gospel, take this picture. Sometimes a picture is so much more helpful. This is the gospel in pictures, in full color. This father receiving his son. 
A wasteful, sinful son who comes home to the father is not just received back as one of the hired servants. See, that's all he wanted. All he wanted was to kind of be neutral in his father's eyes. Just treat me in a neutral way. You don't have to claim me as a son. Just let me live. Let me survive. Just place me back at zero. That's the best that he hoped for because of his sin against the father. But the father wouldn't hear anything of it. Instead of pouring out his wrath on the boy, he pours out the riches of his kindness upon this boy. As if he were the best thing that a father could hope for in a son. That's what God is like. And that's what God does for the repentant sinner. This is a great place in the Bible from which to draw our definition of grace. Grace means that instead of God pouring out his wrath on us, which we deserve because of our sin against him, instead, he pours out the riches of his kindness upon us. And the key piece, which is not seen in this story, which comes later in the Gospel of Luke, and is unfolded in detail in the writing of the apostles, is the role of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who takes the Father's wrath upon himself for our sins against God. He took the wrath that we deserve because of our sin, while we receive the riches and the honor and the clothing that he deserves because of his fidelity to the Father. He takes our sin. We receive his righteousness and the honor due to his name. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father treats the younger son with grace. Please remember, anytime you're describing grace for someone, don't stop with the word undeserved. Grace is not simply God's undeserved favor. That would be like if the son had never left home, went going about his normal duties, and one day the father comes and says, hey, we're going to have a big celebration. I'm going to kill the fattened calf for you. The son would say, why? What have I done? The father would say, nothing. We're just going to celebrate. That would be undeserved favor, right? He hasn't done anything to merit it. Grace is God's ill-deserved favor. When you go out and you waste everything and you totally blow it, and then you come home and are celebrated, that's the gospel. Ill-deserved favor. That's grace. This is a beautiful God. The Father, in the parable, and the God he represents are beautiful. Now, two really quick things in closing about the kind of God that the Bible presents to us. First of all, this God that we're learning about here, the God that the Bible is presenting to us, this God of love, this isn't just the New Testament God. That, that narrative is out there all the time that, yeah, 
the Old Testament God is wrathful, is this kind of harsh, wrathful God, and then the New Testament God is a God of love. I want to show you why that's not true. I want to show you why that's not true from Jeremiah chapter 31, which I don't know. I, I don't know what Jesus had in mind when he told the parable of the prodigal son, but I think it's possible and even very likely that he had Jeremiah 31 in mind when he told this parable. This is, this is, what, this is what we read there. Thus says the Lord, I, a, a voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is talking about the exile period when God's people were sent afar. They were away in a distant country because of their sin. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving, that's Israel. I have heard Ephraim grieving, saying, You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed. I was confounded because of the disgrace of my youth. God now speaking. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. That's how God feels about his sons and daughters in a far-off place, in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we have this beautiful parable told. Basically, exact same thing. That's Jeremiah 31. One consistent, compassionate God through the whole scripture. One father yearning, longing for the return of his son. Last thing about the, the God that the Bible presents to us. Today, um, we, can, we know so much about creation and about the world, like those images from the Hubble telescope, astounding in their beauty. We can see so much and know so much about the fine-tuning of the universe for life. And the, the planets and the stars that we can see are indescribable in their beauty, in their majesty. And then we look around us. That's just out there. Then we look around us in this astounding, beautiful creation that surrounds us in terms of things we can see. And then there's all this beauty at the micro level that chemists and physicists and biologists, biologists can tell us about, about what they see when they look at the tiniest things in the design and the, the incredible handiwork of God. And let me just tell you, in light of all of the beauty that we can see around us in creation... I would find it very, very difficult 
to believe in a God if the Bible presented him as a small, petty, record-keeping, parochial God. I would say that's totally out of accord with everything we see around us. If we opened up this book and had this small, petty God presented to us, I don't think I could believe that. But we open up this book, and the the God that is presented to us in this book is a lover. He is a lover. We, we humans, are the small, petty, record-keeping ones. That's us. That's who we're shown to be in Luke 15. And in contrast, here's this father who is a lover, and that's a God that I can believe in. That the universe that we see around us is founded on the love between a father and a son. That's beautiful, and that's in accordance with everything we see around us. I can believe in that God. I can worship that God, the God who is a lover. Next week, the prodigal son. I hope you can come back. If you're serving communion this morning, I want to invite you to come up um, at this time. Let's pray. Father of patient and longing love, we thank you that we are not problems or projects, but that we are people the work of your hands. Sometimes it seems like our greatest trouble is understanding that you could love us so much and that you could love us in spite of our offenses. Father, let this great love upon which the universe is established, like gravity, draw us to you just as the Lord Jesus, in all of his graciousness, the perfect reflection of you, drew sinners to himself by his presence, made them want to gather around him as people long to gather where there is beauty and where there is grace. Father, we love you in return. Increase our love, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.